We often think of meditation as being at the very heart of the path of awakening. And, of course, in many ways it is. The cultivation of mindfulness and the strengthening of concentration is what makes possible the liberating wisdom of the heart and mind. But as Carol mentioned last night, the Buddhist teaching is much more inclusive than only the very specialized circumstances of intensive practice, as essential as this situation is. And we see this unmistakably in the Buddhist teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path in the different steps. Once we've established ourselves to some extent in right understanding, understanding of the law of karma, understanding of impermanence and the truth of suffering and selflessness, even to some moderate extent, and we have some discernment and practice of right thought, that is really seeing which thoughts lead us to greater happiness and peace in the world and which lead to more suffering. These two steps then are the foundation for what the Buddha laid out as wise living in the world, which are the next three steps of the path. Wise speech, action, and livelihood. I think it's interesting to reflect on our own commitment to awakening because we might notice a certain tendency to make these aspects, these living-in-the-world aspects, of somewhat lesser importance, and not quite at the same level of importance as our meditation practice. But if we hold it in this way, it really fragments our lives, and it weakens essential elements of the path. Seven of the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha said to avoid are purified by these three steps of the path, why speech, action, and livelihood. So seven of the ten unwholesome (coughs) actions to refrain from, we work on and we practice restraint due to these steps. And so we really see that it's an essential part of our path of awakening. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who most of you probably know of, he's an American monk uh, trained in Sri Lanka for many years and is this amazing translator of the Pali texts. Uh, and he's quite a extraordinary mind and grasp of the Pali and the original teachings. This is what he wrote about these three steps of wise living. He said, though the principles laid down in this section of the path, wise speech, action, and livelihood, restrain immoral actions and promote good conduct, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action, 
but primarily as aids to mental purification. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddhist teachings, and its importance cannot be underrated. But in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, which is final deliverance from suffering. So it's just to remind us that as we apply the practice in our lives, it's not a secondary practice. It's not secondary, you know, or inferior to what we do on a retreat. It actually serves the goal of mental purification. It serves the goal of coming to the end of suffering. So the first of this triad of path factors is right speech. And that's what I'd like to talk about this evening. Speech is such a powerful influence in our lives, very largely because we speak a lot. In the course of a day, how many words do we utter? Countless, countless words. And these words, as we know, they condition so much of our lives. Our speech conditions our relationships. It conditions the quality of our minds and hearts. And it also conditions karmic consequences in the future. Our words have power. Our words bring about different results. Now the most basic aspect of right speech or wise speech is truthfulness. That is not saying that which is untrue. And although this seems so obvious and straightforward, it may not always be as easy to practice as we assume. Now there are so many kinds of false speech. There might be flight, slight exaggerations, you know, or humorous untruths. Maybe falsehoods whose motivation is some kind of self-protection or protection of others, you know, in some way that motivates us to say what is untrue. In some circumstances, for some people, there are really deliberate lies said with malicious intent to cause divisiveness and harm. Just recently, last year, in the presidential election in the States, of course it's a playground for wrong speech. Yeah, and all the candidates saying all these things, making all these claims, making all these accusations. It's interesting, on one news program they had a little segment called Fact Check. And they would go through the day, you know, just listing all the things that different of the candidates said that was simply untrue. It was pretty astounding. And it was from all sides. You know, no matter what one political, one's political inclination was. So it's pretty prevalent. In any situation where we say what is untrue, it's really helpful to look at what is our motivation? What's the motivation behind it? 
Is it greed for something? You know, is it a desire for recognition? Maybe a kind of self-aggrandizement? Or is it a fear of rejection or jealousy? Telling untruths becomes very complicated. It really complicates our lives because then we have to tell more untruths to bolster, to support the first one. And so it's having to remember all of this. Mark Twain, the the great American humorist, he said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. (laughs) Which is especially helpful as we get older. (laughs) Lying is really a tremendously corrosive force both in our relationships and in society because it undermines our ability to trust, our ability to trust one another. Nietzsche wrote, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you. You And we know how this is in relationships. Once somebody has been untruthful with us, it's very hard to trust very hard to believe what they say. And so it's tremendously undermining of relationships. The Buddha spoke of this very bluntly, you know, very unmistakably. He said, thus one should never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. Pretty clear. One should never knowingly speak a lie. And in the Bodhisattva's long journey to Buddhahood, you know, in the Buddhist kind of tradition, it speaks of his many past lives in many different situations as he was cultivating the perfections of Buddhahood. It said that he did many wrong actions, you know, and at different times uh, broke many of the precepts. And yet it's said that the one precept he never broke you know, in his long journey to Buddhahood was he never spoke what was untrue. And so central you know, is that principle. The principle of truthfulness is just at the center of the path of awakening. You know, and we can reflect on this in our own lives, just as an inspiration. Can we make truthfulness just the pole star of our speech? But what's so simple, what seems so simple, can be surprisingly difficult. And it always amazes me that it can be so difficult. Sometimes lies just seem to tumble out of our mouths. You know, some years ago, at the end of our annual three-month retreat at IMS, we have a few days which we call uh, integration days, where people are talking with one another and sort of reintegrating into a more normal uh, lifestyle. This is after three months of silence. And in one of the groups... One of the yogis was commenting on, on speech, and he said, 
you know, when I'm talking to other meditators and we're just talking, you know, how long did you sit? How long did you sit? He said he always added 15 minutes. <laughs> it's not a big lie, but it's just, for what? Yeah, but it just seemed to... Oh, I said, two and a quarter hours. <laughs> and another another situation, this was also during the three-month course, there was... At IMS, we have these big uh, walk-in refrigerators, you know, off the kitchen. So one evening, you know, a staff person went in to one of these walk-ins and saw a yogi uh, (laughs) there with his hand in the box of dates. (laughs) And the staff person was very cool and just said, you know, can I help you? And... (laughs) The yogi just, I guess he was really flustered, he said, I'm looking for the maintenance person. <laughs> so sometimes these untruths, they just, they just come tumbling out of us. Sometimes, sometimes there are lies of omission, you know, covering... You know, or withholding something of critical importance. And there's a, a well-known American poet, Adrian Rich. She wrote, "Lying is done with words and also with silence." So that's an interesting notion, you know, and really something for us to look at. Do we lie sometimes by not saying something that needs to be said? Or we might be living under the illusion that we're the kind of person who just doesn't lie. You know, that it's not something we do. In whatever form it takes. And therefore, it can be harder to see and acknowledge when we actually do. And I had one very powerful, painful, and ultimately liberating experience of this. Um, it's when I was practicing with Saira Upandita. He had come to the States, it was a three-month retreat, very intensive, very demanding. And we had interviews with him every day. And so there was just a lot of pressure on reporting our experience, and we had to report very exactly and precisely And I had some notion, some idea in my mind of where my practice was at. You know, I had already been practicing for quite a while, although this was was back in 84. Uh, And, you know, I had a really good map in my mind of how the path unfolds. And so I was presenting my experience in a certain way, casting it in a certain light because of where I thought I was in the practice. And in this one interview, so I'm doing that, and I finish speaking, and Saira just looks at me and says, that isn't true. It was like a knife in my heart. <laughs> I mean, I was devastated. I was completely devastated because he was right. You know, I was kind of altering things according to some notion I had. It took me days to recover. You know, I really work through these intense feelings of shame and self-judgment and you can imagine the trip uh, that my mind went through. 
But I finally came to the place, and this was the liberating part of that really painful experience, came to the place of recognizing and acknowledging, well, I guess my mind can do that too. You know, and before that, I was living under the pretense of, oh, I would never say what was untrue, especially to my teacher. You know, something I wouldn't have even considered. But by going through that experience and having it pointed out to me so bluntly, and coming to acknowledge, oh yeah, the mind can get into that space as well, it became much easier then to recognize when those impulses came up in the mind, to have a much lighter relationship to them, because I could see them more clearly, which of course then gave me the option of, no, you know, I don't need to go there, I don't need to do that. As long as I was living in the illusion that I would never speak like that, never speak that kind of untruth, there was no possibility really of seeing it. So it's very helpful to be disillusioned about ourselves, you know, and to really see what our mind does. Because in that seeing is the possibility of real freedom. Sometimes it takes great courage to practice and speak only what is true. There's one inspiring example of this. It was written about in a book called Life and Death in Shanghai by a woman named Nieng Cheng. So I'll just read a little bit about the book. This, this gripping account of a woman caught up in the maelstrom of China's cultural revolution. In 1966, only the merest rumblings of political upheaval disturbed the gracious life of the author, widow of the manager of Shell Petroleum in China. But as the rumblings fast became a cataclysm, Cheng found herself a target of the revolution. Red guards looted her home, literally grinding underfoot her antique porcelain and draped treasures. She was summarily imprisoned, falsely accused of espionage. Inquisitors accused her of being a spy and imperialist. But during the harrowing years of solitary confinement and torture, she never gave in, never confessed a lie. You know, and they had wanted her to confess to some kind of political machinations, and she would have been released. So quite amazing, you know, that commitment to the truth, even under those circumstances. She never confessed to a lie. And the book is, is a very, very inspiring example in, um, of that possibility. Truthfulness, as this first aspect of wise speech, has profound implications. You know, because our whole goal in practice is to see the truth and to live in accordance with it. One meaning of the term of the word dharma is truth or reality. And so when we're practicing dharma, when we're engaged in dharma practicing, really what we're practicing is truth. So again from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Truthful speech 
establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than on illusion. You know, so that's it's really a wonderful connection to make between our words and our commitment to reality, you know, so that our words reflect the truth of what is happening. The Buddha expressed the overriding importance of this in a conversation he had with his son Rahula, who was at the time just a novice monk. You know, he was a, a young young boy. And the Buddha pointed to a bowl with just a very little bit of water uh, at the bottom of it. And the Buddha said, pointing to the, just that little bit of water, so little is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. And then the Buddha spoke in a similar way. He spilled out the water um, and the bowl was empty. Finally, the Buddha turned the bowl upside down and said, Do you see, Rahula, how this bowl has been turned upside down? In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. Therefore, one should never speak a deliberate lie, even in jest. There's this tremendous emphasis on this aspect of the path. Because it really influences and conditions our unfolding of the spiritual journey. It has tremendous impact. Even though the words are fleeting, they have a major result in our lives. So it's helpful to sensitize ourselves you know, to even small falsehoods. It's as if, you know, as we go through our lives, it's as if we have this small bell, this small, small little bell that goes off and reminds us, as we're about to say something, this isn't true. Just, just that, little, that little reminder before we speak, which then gives us the chance to realign ourselves with right speech. Okay, so truthfulness. You know, the, the, central, the central pillar of wise speech. The second aspect of it is refraining from slandering, gossip, and backbiting. You know, because that kind of speech, as we know, causes disharmony, it causes loss of friends. Well, the Buddha said it this way, what one has heard here is not repeated there, so as to cause dissension there. What one has heard there is not repeated here, so as to cause dissension here. One unites those who are divided, and encourages those who are united. One delights and rejoices in concord, and it is concord that one spreads by one's words. So given that, and given that we know that, I think a question for us to consider 
given the strong tendency to gossip and just to talk about others, is what is the enjoyment of it? You know what? What is the enjoyment that we get out of it? It's very common. When we're gossiping about others, you know, does it reaffirm some sense of self in some way? Is there some ego gratification? It's very seductive. Years ago, uh, an American writer, his name was Tony Schwartz, was writing a book on the spiritual, the spiritual scene in America. You know, and he was going around interviewing different teachers, and he came up to IMS uh, to interview me for a chapter in this book. Very skilled interviewer. You know, so we just got into this very flowing conversation. And then he started asking my views on the other teachers, you know, in the country. Of course, I had opinions and views about almost everyone. (laughs) And it was so tempting. It was so tempting to say what I thought. But I am so grateful (laughs) that mindfulness stepped in and I could just see that temptation. And I said, no, I don't have to do that. And I just did not speak about any of my esteemed colleagues. I was so grateful because when the book came out, of course, everything that was in the interview was in the book. And if I had you know, gone with that inclination, all of those words would have been in the book and I would have been very regretful. And so, even though you know, we may be inclined and it's so easy... to give voice to those thoughts and opinions and views about other people, do we really want to do it? When I first became interested in Buddhism, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was back in 1965. I was in Thailand and I was just so first excited about being in Asia and it was all really new and I was very young and the teachings were so exciting to me. So I was exploring it all, and part of it was you know, this aspect of right speech. So I made an experiment for quite a while. I made the decision, and this, it lasted for a few months, not to speak about any third person. I wouldn't speak to someone about someone else. It was a pretty amazing experiment. First, I noticed that about 90% of my speech was eliminated. You know, and it was startling to me to realize how much of what I talked about was just speaking about other people. And not, it's not that everything said about other people is malicious or hurtful or not. Sometimes you know, it could be kindly words, but it's just speaking to someone about someone who's not there. Why? One of the results of that little experiment was that I found my mind becoming much less judgmental because I wasn't giving voice, you know, just to the many judgments we have about other people. As it became less judgmental of others, very happily became less judgmental of myself. And so the effect of this experiment 
you know, in why speech or why silence, right, really had a very uh, salubrious effect on my mind, made my mind a lot more peaceful. So even if we loosen the parameters a little bit, and we, you know, we're not saying we'll never speak about somebody who's not present, still we can take great care when we are engaging in that kind of speech, not to do it carelessly or thoughtlessly, and really to see what our intention is. In speaking about others to someone else, is it our intention to divide, to cause some kind of divisiveness, or is the intention to bring people together? Just paying attention to that, just that, would change our lives. You know, it's a powerful, it's a powerful force in our relationships in the world. Is what we say said with an intention to bring people together or to divide? On another whole level, our speech may be a kind of gossip about ourselves. You know, in the Buddhist framework, in the Buddhist psychology, there's one defilement of mind. In Pali, the term for defilement is kalesa. Uh, in this particular defilement, is, the Pali word is mana, or conceit. But it doesn't have the usual meaning in Eng- that the English word conceit has. Mana, or conceit in the Buddhist sense, is just that the sense of I am... And it can be, I am better than, I am worse than, I am equal to, any kind of comparing at all. Or it can be the I am, I was in the past, I am this now, I will be in the future. So it all has to do with that I, that I sense. So this is, this is the defilement of mana. So in our speech, we can really pay attention to whether the patterns of our speech are just overly self-referential. You know, whether somehow we're always bringing the conversation back to ourselves. It would be useful to see that. It would be insightful to see what that motivation is. Or it might be the opposite conditioning of mana or conceit. Rather than always taking center stage, maybe we're the type of person who is always obsessively staying behind the scenes and not giving voice to our thoughts or feelings. That's kind of the inverted sense of conceit of I am, feeling lesser than. How we speak, the patterns of our speech, the words we use, can be such a powerful mirror for our minds. Both wholesome and unwholesome motivations become so clear when we have the interest and the alertness to look. I saw the power of this particular uh, defilement of mana one time through speech. It really became clear. I was driving back from New York City after spending a weekend there with some friends and uh, giving some talks. And on the drive back with my friend... I saw this thought arise in my mind. I was about to say something 
There was basically a self-referential thought about something over the weekend. But it had no relevance to anything. It was just out of the blue. It's not what we were talking about. It was basically just a way of saying, I'm here. (laughs) So I saw this arise in my mind. I thought, hmm, I don't need to say that. You know, it it didn't serve any purpose. So the thought went away, and about ten seconds later, it popped up again in my mind. (laughs) And I saw it. No, I don't need to say that. Ten seconds later, it popped up again. And I don't know how many times it popped up, and I saw it, and I let it go. Popped up, saw it, let it go. I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh time, popped up. (laughs) Out came the words. (laughs) And I just saw the power of this defilement of conceit, this, this I am sense. It was like being pregnant with it. You know, it needed to give birth to those words. And it said that mana is not uprooted, that, that defilement is not uprooted until full enlightenment. You know, even after we're free of desire and free of aversion, mana is still there. So we can learn a lot about it. We can really see it in action through our speech, if we're paying attention. And sometimes we'll be able to see it and actually not give voice to it. Sometimes we will, but at least we'll be seeing it. We'll be learning from it. The Spanish poet... uh, Antonio Antonio Machado, he he had some good advice. He said, if you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. It's it's basically good advice. Okay, so the first aspect of why speech is truthfulness. The second is refraining from backbiting, gossip. The third aspect of wise speech has to do with the emotional tone in our minds and in our hearts and how this conditions and flavors the words that we use. So the practice of this aspect of right speech is refraining from harsh, angry, and abusive language. As the Buddha said, one speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, Such words as go to the heart are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. Do we really practice this? Do we really hold this as a guideline of the path? You know, so that we're not just giving vent to all the words independent of what the energy is behind them, but we're paying attention to the quality of the energy. Are the words gentle or harsh? Are they soothing? Are they loving? Do they go to the heart? There's a story, there are many stories of the Buddha's past lives as a bodhisattva, they're called the Jataka tales. And in one of these stories, it tells how he weaned his otherwise good mother from the unskillful habit she had of harsh speech. It said that even though she was basically a good person, 
as it says, she was rude and ill-tongued. But her son, the Bodhisattva, aware of the weakness, did not want to hurt her by just speaking to her directly about it. So one day they were just walking in one of the parks. Uh, The Bodhisattva then happened to be the king of Benares. So he was walking in the royal park, and they heard uh, a blue jay uh, screeching, you know, in the tree. And I guess it was a very, very discordant sound, very unpleasant. And then later, you know, they walk in the park and they heard this Indian cuckoo bird. And it said, it called so sweetly, you know, that people... <laughs> <laughs> It's great when it comes in right on cue. (laughs) So people were very happy to hear that very sweet sound. So (laughs) it said this was this was the moment the Bodhisattva was waiting for. He said, "Mother dear, the jay's cry was dreadful, and we covered our ears rather than listen to it. No one delights in coarse language." Though without beauty, the cuckoo won the love and attention of all with its pleasing call. One's speech, therefore, should be friendly and restrained, calm and full of meaning. Thus exhorted by her son, the mother became refined in speech and elegant in manners. <laughs> it's funny, I had, I had read that story years and years ago, and it's, you know, one wouldn't think of it as being, you know, particularly profound teaching of the Dharma. But somehow that story remained in my mind over all these years of just a reminder, you know, of the power of the way we speak and the energy we use and the tone of our voice. It has impact. It's not inconsequential. We can see the importance of this, we can feel the importance of this if we pay attention to how we feel when we have angry words directed at us, when we're on the receiving end of angry or abusive language, how do we feel? Probably not that great. We probably get defensive and maybe angry in return. And it's definitely not a good environment for open communication. And really, open communication between us is what wise speech is really all about. It's important, really important, to remember that this does not mean, the intent here is not to suppress whatever feelings we have. Because sometimes we do have very intense emotions and there is a need to communicate something powerfully. The skill is learning how to communicate it in a way that's skillful, in a way that can be heard, in a way that's appropriate, in a way that actually fosters connection rather than divisiveness. So this is its own skill. Right speech also has implications for how we listen, for how we listen to others. And the Buddha outlined a practice that 
if people would actually apply it in their lives, would transform the world. It's such a striking practice. So here the Buddha is addressing the monks. He says, bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech, five ways of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. These are the different ways someone might address us. Here in Bhikkhus you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. That's quite a practice. Where we actually are being mindful of the speech of another person. Now, just as we can be mindful of all the different mind states within ourselves and learn to be non-reactive and just see each for what it is and actually be compassionate towards all of them, in the same way we can be mindful in listening of another's speech. Mindful that's true, that's untrue. That's loving, that's not loving. That's going through all those ways others may speak to us and training ourselves, our minds will remain unaffected as we listen to these words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare. And this is tremendously challenging. You know, somebody's saying that which is untrue and harmful and untimely. To have that degree of balance and understanding and wisdom and compassion and it would be quite remarkable. So we can practice it. It's not that we'll be always successful, but even to keep it in mind as a practice. So not only are we mindful of our own speech, we actually stay mindful in listening of another's speech. A great practice in the world. Okay, so the last aspect of wise speech is refraining from useless talk. And the Pali word for useless talk is a great word and it sounds, it's really onomatopoeia. It sounds like just what it is. The Pali word is sampapalapa. (laughs) (laughs) Sampapalapa. We see this so often in social situations. You know, we just we just say useless things. But these kind of useless words and idle chatter, they're very enervating. You know, they're draining of energy. And they cause a loss of respect because our words actually become worthless. And sometimes this kind of idle chatter can have very harmful consequences even just in the moment. This is a story of... A friend told me, you have to remember, this story uh, happened prior to 
right? So after 9-11, it's unimaginable that it would have even happened. So it happened before 9-11. So this friend of mine from New York uh, was going to Bali for vacation. And he made all these plans, you know, it was a big trip. He goes to the airport, gets on the plane, he had injured his wrist or his hand somehow. So he got on the plane, sitting in his seat, uh, and he was exercising his hand, you know, with some kind of rubber ball or something. So the flight attendant comes down and just out of interest says, oh, you know, what's that? And just, you know, that thing, he says, plastique. You know, plastique is the explosive the terrorists use to blow things up. So he was just making a joke, you know, some plastique. Within two minutes, the FBI was on the plane. They, they escorted him out, interrogated him for hours. You know, the airline wouldn't let him back on the plane, said he could never fly this airline again. I mean, it was this whole huge thing. Finally, after some days, I kind of he worked something out, and you know, he ended up in Mali. But it's just a moment, some papalapa. <laughs> you know, what's this? You know, plastique. <laughs> of course, now if he did it now, he'd probably be in jail. <laughs> but even more remarkable, after going through all that, on his way home, <laughs> he's sitting in the airport in Bali, waiting to get on the plane, and just you know, talking. The person next to me didn't know. And just uh, having this idle conversation. And he says, hey, do you know you're sitting next to a terrorist? <laughs> you know, talking about that experience. Fortunately, there was no immediate consequence of that remark. But it's just an example of, <laughs> I mean, completely useless talk. Having consequences. So a very good question for us to hold in our minds before we speak, is this true? Is it useful? You know, is it necessary? Well, again, the Buddha expressed it this way. He said, one speaks at the right time in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the Dharma, such, as, such a person's speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. It's just refining our speech. So here the Buddha was speaking to the monastic community. When Bhikkhu Bodhi was writing about this, he kind of expanded the parameters a little bit in terms of lay people. You know, and he acknowledged that lay people, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, will have more need for for affectionate small talk with friends and family, polite conversation with acquaintances, you know, and talk in connection with work. So we might not hold to quite the standard of monks or nuns who, at least according to the guidelines, should speak only Dharma all the time. You know, as lay people, there will be more occasion for, you know, perhaps friendly small talk. But even in that more expanded you know, sense, there is great room to practice restraint of some papalapa. You know, I have found the practice of this uh, tremendously helpful and strengthening of mindfulness. 
You know, often when I'm just hanging out, I'm just with friends, and very often, and I presume it's not just me, it's probably a common tendency, just hanging out, talking, and very often something will come in the mind to say, that is really useless. It just has no point at all. It's just... And so in those moments when I can see that impulse, you know, I'm about to say something really useless, and there's enough mindfulness, no, I don't have to do that. You know, I was just restrained. I let, I let it go. It really, it's like one of those small victories over Mara. You know, it's, there's a strengthening. There's a strengthening of the quality of mindfulness, of restraint, The practice of right speech in all of these different ways is a powerful part of our path. You know, it's not, it's not secondary. And especially as people living in the world, you know, and engaged in relationships of all kinds, attention to speech and the practice of wise speech is a way of bringing mindfulness, bringing attention bringing wise care just throughout our day, throughout our lives. It's such an important part of our lives. And so it really helps to wake us up. When we're practicing wise speech, we're practicing abstinence from unwholesome mind states. We're cultivating the beautiful qualities of minds of the Brahma-viharas, of loving-kindness and compassion and mudita, appreciative joy. And most importantly, as we practice wise speech, it aligns us with what is true. And that is really the heart of the whole path. So I'd just like to close with these words from the Buddha. If speech has five marks, it is well spoken, not badly spoken, blameless, and above reproach from the wise. What are these five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. So it would be good to take those five marks in. It is speech that is timely, is true, is gentle, is purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. And if we can reflect on that and really use that uh, as a mirror for for our minds... It's a way of cultivating this very central aspect of the path to awakening. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.